0: Please find a comfortable position. or your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. then, like an unflickering candle flame inside a clear glass jar, let your awareness resting in its own stillness illuminate the space of the body, or simply illuminate this tactile field. Illuminate the fluctuations of the field associated with the in-and-out breath. And note their duration, whether they are long or short. Do so as quietly as you can, as non-conceptually as you can, releasing instantly whatever thoughts arise. And let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze resting resting vacantly in the space in front of you. And continue to be primarily aware of the fluctuations in the field of the of the body, corresponding to the respiration. But be a bit more explicitly aware, more attentive to the movements of the mind, all the while letting your awareness remain still, cognizant, and clear, without being caught up and carried away by conceptualization. now let the primary focus of your awareness, of your attention, be on the space of the mind and whatever thoughts, images, desires or emotions arise within that space, engage in the familiar practice of taking the mind as the path, but for a little while maintain explicitly and deliberately a peripheral awareness of the fluctuations in this somatic field. Something to hold on to, a bit of an anchor for your awareness so you don't so easily get caught up and carried away by thoughts and memories. See that that your eyes are soft, the forehead open, spacious, relaxed, in fact that all the muscles of the face are relaxed and loose, and the eyes soft and unfocused. Now single-pointedly focus your attention on the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, simply observing the nature of whatever event arises, while all the while letting awareness rest in stillness, simultaneously observing and discerning the movements of the mind With your faculty of introspection, monitor the flow of mindfulness. And as soon as you retrospectively note that excitation has set in, relax, release, and return to the present moment, to what's arising in the mind right now. And if there's nothing arising, attend closely to the space of the mind. When with your faculty of introspection you see that the mind has lost its clarity which is to say your awareness has been veiled by dullness by laxity then refresh your interest in the practice restore your attention in the present moment and retain that flow of clear cognizant mindfulness ever fresh attending to what is arising right now in the ever-fresh, present moment. And let's continue practicing now in silence. I need to read something kind of urgent, so I just will take a short time. It relates to a big project, so we shall see. Roger, Roger. slowly coming. Continue resting your mind; it's a natural state. <laughs> if this weren't very important, I would not put you on pause, but this. Seems very important. Directly from the Lama. This is very good news. Very auspicious timing as well. Oh, that brings me happiness. I'm just very happy. (laughs) This could be good. We're going to return to the text. I'm not going to read much more, but to provide some context to this enormously important brief reference. The last thing I read. Due to being obscured by the three kinds of ignorance, they, sentient beings, do not know the manner of their liberation. They don't know how to be free not knowing, due to being obscured by the three kinds of ignorance, of unknowing, unawareness. They do not know the manner of their liberation, or they do not know how to be free. So I'm going to unpack that. But I I presume you remember vividly the preceding section. on Remember hatred and the whole issue around hatred, taking that as simply one example out of 84,000 mental afflictions. But also, as he said so clearly, one example out of the whole array of mental events. Right? Just take that one, if you've understood that one, which is a real bugger, a real nasty one. If you've understood that one, then you understand all the rest. Right? That's really important. If you can release that one, if you can see how anger, hatred, it's so belligerent, it's like a bulldozer. Right? When it comes into the mind, it, gives it, it seems so tangible, almost like it could give you a bruise. right? Isn't it true? So strong, so, so painful. I know, it. I know what it's like. I'm not an arhat, in case you were wondering. That's the breaking news. I'm an arhat. I have mental addictions coming up. But the worst of them in my experience, the one I find most painful, is I'm at, I don't really think I've experienced hatred recently. But that genre, anger, yeah. Yeah. Very painful. So you remember. Well, I'm going to give you a little mundo, a little pre- prelimin- some preliminary practices to that one because it's so simple. It's really the Dzogchen approach. Now we see it in settling the mind in this natural state. Here we see this, essentially the same method, but as I said yesterday, much deeper perspective, because this is rikpa. But we just have to, do, we have to be where we are. If we haven't realized rikpa yet, then don't, let's not beat ourselves up. Let's just do as well, well as we can in that same flow, that same current. Take the mind as a path. For the time being, that may be as close as we can get to what he just described there. And that will take it to the same, same destination. It's not another direction. it's the same direction. It's just an earlier phase, in the same direction, right? But how can we prepare for that? Because we know it's not easy. Remember, I said, because this, well, this is my experience. I think I'm something of an expert on mental afflictions. I've had all of them. The complete transmission and empowerment and explanation. I know the mental afflictions. you know. I've been inside their camp. I know about them. I'm reporting to the light side, having been on the dark side. We know what it's like, but especially hatred, especially anger, because it's so ferocious. That image of getting the, your head in a vice, like you have to focus, that's what's really pissing you off, that's it. Now, of course, craving, lust, infatuation, they can do the same thing, they all can, but hatred's really belligerent, right? That's not easy. Let's let's just not pretend that that's easy. It never is easy when we get really upset. And of course, when we get really upset, we justify it. I have a right to be angry. Yeah, that's like, I have a right to get polio. I have a right to get TB. I have a right to Ebola. If other people can have Ebola, I can have Ebola. I have a right. It all makes equal sense. And if if I want to drink strychnine, I can. Muy estupido, ay, 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 ay So how do we prepare? Because that's really that's an old habit, isn't it? It's so hard when it comes up. The last thing we're prepared to do is actually look at it. So maybe a little bit of preliminary practice, not quite up there on that level, because that's not the only practice. Maybe a bit of momentum to get there, so that we're prepared. We're prepared. So there was one, I think it was a Kadampa Geshe, a long time ago. He said, when my mental afflictions come up, then I'm really vigilant. When they subside, then I relax. Something very close to that. So what I'm going to be citing here from the Mundo is from A Guide to the What is that Way of Life. Fourth chapter. And the chapter title is interesting in Tibetan and Sanskrit. It's different. I'm just going to give the Tibetan title. And it's the leo that discusses, reveals. Mm, apramada is called Sanskrit. Apramada. I think the best translation, and I've had it in mind for a long time, a lot of people have, is conscientiousness. The closest we get. Conscientiousness. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to define it. No, I'm not going to define it. A Sangha's already defined it. I'm going to, I'm going to translate what he said in the Abhidhamma people brilliant, brilliant work. But apramada, apramada. So, very often in the Buddhist teachings, we're all the way through, Pali can and Mahayana, all the way through, very often you get a dynamic duo coming up, often referred to just to- almost like hyphenated. Tenshi, tenba dan Mindfulness, introspection. Those two come up a lot, just like they're just a pair, almost like hyphenated. Well, you know why, okay? But sometimes it's a mighty trio, the three musketeers. And in which case the third one is apramada, conscientiousness. Okay? So, and this is everywhere. Pali Canon, and Mahayana everywhere. These three. Mindfulness, which is bearing in mind, introspection, which is monitoring not only your mind, not only in that limited framework of Shamatha, of looking for excitation and laxity, but more broadly speaking, this sometimes well, just we'll just stick with introspection. It is that that ref, that discerning monitoring of the of the movements of the body, of our body, the speech, and the mind, right? The activities. It's a monitoring. It's a self-monitoring, just like a very conscientious driver will look at the dashboard and see the speedometer, the odometer, the how how much gas do you have in tank? How is the engine overheating? And so on. It's just you know checking up once in a while, make sure you're not going to you know melt your engine, etc. And so apramada. So we don't need a definition for me. Let's just get the definition straight from Asanga, one of the greatest pundits of all of India. In the, in the Buddhist tradition. So from his Abhidhamma Samachaya, he asked, what is conscientiousness? Establish, establishing its basis, or being grounded in, non-attachment, non-hatred, and non-dilution, so it's free of those. You can't have conscientiousness that is rooted in, or is, how do you say, filtered by, configured by, attachment, craving, or hostility. That's not going to work out. So it has to be, have to have lift-off there." And that is liftoff or, let's say, grounded in the absence of. The absence of that is not. So as I'm attending to Martin, for example, right now it's true. I'm attending to him with non-attachment. That doesn't mean detachment, like I don't care. It's just that as I'm attending to him, there's just no attachment at all, right? And then also I can say right now, non-hostility. Non-hostility. Now on a subtle level, reification, of course, of course, but not anything really gross in terms of delusion. So, relatively speaking, right now my way of attending to Martin is not especially diluted. Not particularly. Okay? So that's it. So it has to be rooted in the non three poisons. But then it's coupled with virya, enthusiasm. Yeah, isn't it nice? So it's coupled with enthusiasm. That is, you're enjoying practicing. It's not that big a deal. But you're enjoying practicing, you're not doing it as a burden, you're not whipping yourself up the heel, up the hill with a whip of patience and tenacity and true grit. You're enjoying practicing. That's where conscientiousness comes in. Because you're eager to, happy to, you know, practice this, cultivate, apply this conscientiousness. So establishing its basis in non-attachment, non-hatred, non-delusion, coupled with enthusiasm, it considers whatever is virtuous and protects the mind against things that cannot satisfy. Its function is to make complete and to realize all mundane and supermundane virtues. So I've already sent off the up, up, updated notes, so you'll just check that. Sangi is very punctual. She'll do it tomorrow morning, California time. Um, but that's it. So in short now, just in colloquial or vernacular language. Conscientiousness when, when it's operating. It's a mental it's a mental factor, one of the fifty-one mental factors. It's a virtuous one, of course, but it's the one that really cares. It's it's it, it cares. It's sometimes called something called concern, but intelligent, ethical concern. And that is basic motivation. I don't want to do any harm. I'd like to do some good in this world as much as I can. And therefore, as I'm behaving, I'm engaging in the world, I want to make sure that if I'm starting to slip off into something that is driven by mental affliction that is non-virtual. I don't want to do that. I really don't. I, don't. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to hurt myself or anybody else. And so I see, if I see my speech starting to slip off in that direction, I'm going to pull back. If I see my intention starting, I'm going to pull back. It's doing something with my body that might be harmful. I'm going to pull back. That's conscientiousness. Quite straightforward. So Devi, the fourth chapter of A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, is simply discussing that. He unpacks that. And so I've just taken some verses here from that chapter, but I think you'll find that um, this sutrayana practice, this bodhisattvayana practice, really engage in this, drench your mind in it, familiarize your mind with what Shantadeva is about to share with us, and that's going to really prepare you. It's going to make it much more practical, effective, to engage in this more subtle practice described there in Natural Liberation, and the correspondingly subtle practice of taking the mind as the path. So here is Deva. I've just selected from chapter 4, and you'll see each, so each verse, you can find it easily, but you'll have it on your notes. So, but it's highlighting a point I, I made yesterday, and that is when it comes to mental afflictions, when it comes to obscurations generally, but for us, mental afflictions are the ones that really are prominent, Buddhism is not pacifistic. It's not pacifistic at all. That's why these terms like arhat, enemy, destroyer come up, because it's not, it's not, comf- it's not congenial. It's not patient. It's not accepting of mental afflictions. There's a lot of that coming up, of a particular interpretation of mindfulness, and I want, I'm choosing my words very carefully, of a particular interpretation of the modern. Definition of mindfulness that's permeating psychology these days. Moment-to-moment, non-judgmental awareness, whatever arises. Okay? There are various ways of interpreting that. I've spoken with John Kabat-Zinn ab- about it. He gives a very intelligent interpretation. He's a very smart guy and very good heart. But there's another interpretation that is about as intelligent. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say it's very misguided. Really profoundly misguided, and that is whatever comes up, just accept it. And accept it means it's fine. It's fine. Compassion, uh, aggression, lust, selfishness, greed, hatred. Just be present with it. It's, it's not settling the is natural state. It's kind of like, embrace them all together. You know? Don't be judgmental. Accept all of yourself. I mean, you're, you're human after all, so you're hateful sometimes. But, you know, be kind about that. You know, Don't be too upset when you get a hateful. You know, just be accepting. If you think I'm exaggerating, I'll show you the scientific paper where this is espoused. It's a test. It's a measurement of mindfulness. And one of the measurements is, there's a whole list of them. I've cited it in my book, um, Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic, where they t- you're, you're doing well if you never, never use any discernment with respect to anything that comes up not even questioning whether your perceptions are valid. Don't even do that. That's being judgmental. It's sheer, it's a cultivation of stupor. And I'm not exaggerating. It's literally a cultivation of moral imbecility and intellectual stupor. I'm not exaggerating. And you don't have to take my word for it. Read it. See it for yourself. Somebody here might might have a copy of a book called Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic. I've just been giving away chapters one after another. Would somebody please read this book? We've given, with the Columbia University Press, we've given away for free three chapters now. And the universe goes, What? Turns to other things. Okay, that's okay. So here we go. Shantideva, you ready? Enemies such as craving and and hatred are without arms, legs, and so on. They are neither courageous nor wise. How is it they've enslaved me? So developing this attitude, this is a great Bodhisattva saying, this, not just some flaming lunatic from California. Stationed in my mind, they ruin me while remaining well-established themselves. And yet I do not get angry at my forbearance with this shameful and improper situation. So he's scolding himself for his forbearance, his complacency, his accepting quality. We can all get along here. A bit of craving, a bit of hostility, jealousy. After all, you're only human. Come on. I mean, your nearest neighbors are gorillas and and gorillas and chimpanzees. You know, don't get your hopes up. You're not, you know, this is just part of human nature. We're greedy, we're lustful, we're competitive, we're mean-spirited on an occasion. But, you know, let's not get too upset about it. Only when it gets pathological, then it's bad. But you know, until then, you know, be gentle with these mental afflictions. They're part of you. You know, like cancer, and it's part of you, like worms, and diabetes, and parasites, and that creepy thing that came out of Sigourney Weaver's chest—an alien. It's part of you. you know. It's part of you. If all gods and humans were my enemies, even they would be unable to bring me to the fire of the Avicii hell. All other enemies cannot remain as long as my enemies, the mental afflictions which long endure without beginning or end. So whatever enemies we think we have out there, they come and go. But these ones, they've been with us for every, every single lifetime we've ever had. Then needless to say, not even a hundred causes of suffering will make me succumb to weariness and despair as I now apply myself to conquering my natural enemies, which are the perpetual causes of all miseries. In other words, this is a declaration of war. Not even a hundred causes of suffering, no matter how much suffering, no matter how much misery I go through, I will never succumb to weariness or despair as I take up this battle. This battle I will win, and it no doesn't matter how long it takes, how much suffering or, or, or challenges or difficulties there are. This is a fight to the finish. There are only one person come out of the ring. All of the other ones will perish, and I will continue the battle until that total annihilation is been achieved. Here I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed, and with vengeance I shall wage battle. That kind of mental affliction is the exception. That kind of mental affliction is the exception for it destroys mental afflictions. What's that, that kind of mental affliction? This hatred, the loathing, and contempt, this sense of vengeance directed towards mental afflictions. That's not my interpretation. That is the interpretation. It says there's only one mental affliction I'm going to tolerate here, and that is the loathing and contempt, the hatred for mental afflictions. That one I accept, because that one will give me the, the clout, the hammer, to destroy all the other ones. But of course, there's no sentient being here. There's not one, not Hitler, not Goebbels, not, no, not anybody. Not the materialists, not the atheists, not the Christians, Buddhists, or anybody else. Not one sentient being is the target of this wrath. It's only mental afflictions. And that's Sutrayana. You see this now, symbolically, high, Archetypally, oh man, oh man, Mahakala, Yamantaka, you know, Panalamo, Sri Devi, etc., etc. That's real wrath, and when it's exactly targeted at the same object: its mental afflictions. But it's real wrath. You know? So he says, "I'm obsessed." I'm a, that's a bad thing, and except for this one. This is the one obsession. Okay, that's what we're dealing with: is craving and hatred here. Craving and hatred. Okay, this is the one kind of craving you stick with. Be obsessive, tenacious, absolutely fixated on the total elimination of all mental afflictions in your mind stream. And with a vengeance, never tolerate even one mental affliction. It's intense speech. Even when ordinary enemies have been expelled from one country, they settle in another and take control. Then, upon re- recovering their strength, they return. But the way of this enemy, the mental afflictions, is not like that. In other words, if you expel them from your mind, if they assault you, and then you assault right back and you conquer them, they have no place to go. They can't hop from your mind and, and jump over into you know, somebody else's mind, like a frog jumping out of one pool, going to another pool. So if I exterminated mine, they can't jump over into Emerson's mind and say, Alan's mind is a bit hostile for us, but you, you'll, you'll take care of us for a while, Right? We'll get back at them after, you know, you've resuscitated. They can't go anywhere. So if you destroy them, they have nowhere to go. Okay? Miserable afflictions are conquerable with the eye of wisdom. Once they are dispelled from my mind, where will they go? Where will they rest and then return to torment me? In other words, he's really holding this aloft. This is a, a battle that can be won. Because if I banish them, they have nowhere to go. They can't go recoup someplace. Feeble in spirit, I'm lacking in perseverance. He's turning to himself and saying, don't be a wimp now. This is a battle that can be won, but only with the valor, the tenacity, the commitment of a warrior. Right? Mental afflictions do not exist in sense objects, nor in the sense faculties. Nor in the space between, nor anywhere else. Now, does this sound familiar? They're not out there. Not they're not out there. Not, they're not in here, and they're not in between. But we just had this, right, Soochin, wasn't it? That's the issue of location. Where is that hatred located? Where did it come from? Where is it located? Where does it go? He's doing the same. Same, same continuum, isn't it? Where do they exist? These mental afflictions, where do they exist and agitate the whole world? Because they do, right? All of the environmental catastrophes we're experiencing. Every single one, you trace it, trace it. Where did it come from? Politicians, business people, general public? No. No. America, China, Brazil? No. Now be smart here. Where did they come from? All these environmental problems we're having, all the inequities, these ghastly economic inequities that we have in the world, the injustice, the grotesque things that are happening all over the world that we read every single day, where are they coming from? All of them, without exception, from mental afflictions. Not American mental afflictions, or German, or English, or Brazilian, just mental afflictions. They're all coming from that. Every single one. The economic, the social, the environmental, every single one traces back to mental afflictions. If there were no mental afflictions, none of those would occur. Not one. They would all be solved just by solving this, finding out who are the true enemies. Not the rich countries, not the poor countries, not the communist countries or the capitalist countries. They're not the enemy, right? It's mental afflictions, And whether it's a Buddhist or a Hindu, Christian, atheist, agnostic, doesn't matter. They're the culprit. So it's time to really recognize who the real enemies are. But these that agitate the whole world, that bring about, could even end human civilization, this is an open question right now. Where do they exist in that, and agitate the whole world? These which have such power, where are they? He continues, this is an illusion only. That sounds like Padmasambhava. They're doing so much destruction. They always have. Every single war, every bit of racism, misogyny, sexist bias, every bit, every single time from these. And yet, you look for them, and you can't find them. They're illusions. Liberate your fearing heart and cultivate perseverance for the sake of wisdom. Why would you torture yourself in hells for no reason? They're saying, really get a grip. Now's the time. Get your act together. We have this lifetime to really do some irreparable damage to our mental afflictions. That never in any future lifetime will they be able to torture us as much as they did have so, so far in this lifetime. Now's the time. This opportunity with these teachers, these teachings, this type of Sangha. We really have the chance now to do some irreparable damage. So we'll never suffer as much in any future life. It's really possible but only if we get really pissed off in a really benevolent way. After pondering in this way, I shall make an effort to apply the teachings as they have been explained. How can someone who could be cured by medicine be restored to health if he strays from the physician's advice? That, as I recall, is the final verse in the chapter. But he gives this marvelous analogy, the closest of all possible analogies. The Buddha himself, the great physician. Your gurus, your lamas, the great physicians. They are the physicians. They are here above all not to convert you, to persuade you, to, to control you, and so forth and so on. They're here to heal us. That's what the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, the gurus are all for, simply to heal us. And they give us the very best they can. They always have. I know I've had so many, do have so many, Lamas, and I know every single one offered their very best, but if we don't take the medicine they give us, if we don't follow their advice, then they've wasted their time. We've wasted their time. We've wasted our time. And one of the saddest situations that I've seen is when people study Dharma extensively, with real, a lot of intelligence, even mastering more than one language, maybe you study. Tibetan and maybe Sanskrit, some even master Chinese and Pali, and some even go into Mongolian and Japanese, and, and they study texts and texts and texts, and they teach and they teach, and they never practice, never develop any faith, never any confidence. So sad, it's so, I mean, they're so close. And like that analogy is homeniski is like that piece of yak hide. We just smear a little butter on the surface, and then it sets. And these these minds often are the most the most resistant. Almost, really, it's like giving somebody antibiotics. But instead of having them take the whole the full course, which you have to do every single time, right? No, no, no. After the first one, I'm feeling much better now. It was a seven day course. After the first day, I'm I'm finished. I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need to take all the rest. And now. They're screwed. Because now that antibiotic may be, never work for them again. And then the next kid comes along and, oh, those bacteria come in and eat them alive because they have a resistance to the antibiotic. In effect, it doesn't work anymore. And that's what such people do. And some of them are Buddhist Dharma centers. I'm not just talking about academia, religious studies departments. I know them well, by the way. I've spent 10 years in religious studies departments. Stanford, UCSB. I know them very well. And what I've just said happens an awful lot. I know, I know, I know. And then anybody who has, really has faith in the Dharma, they call them enthusiasts. Enthusiasts, like you addle brain subjective nitwits. Whereas we academics, we're so objective. We stand above all of that. As if they're not even in samsara. They're standing outside. And, oh yes, and we'll write a paper about this, and write a paper about that. But it's not only in academia. It happens in Dharma Center. I've seen it. People study for years and years and years and never really practice. And all the dharma is coming out of their mouth like diarrhea. They don't practice, don't have faith, don't have reverence, don't have humility. Their minds are not being purified. But now they've taken just a little bit of antibiotics and now the dharma doesn't work. So sad. So incredibly sad to get that close and to be that far away. Incredibly sad. So that's Shantideva's preliminary practices. And then we move on. So now I'm going to give commentary. I'm going to read that sentence again. Due to being obscured by the three kinds of ignorance, they do not know how to be free. Three types of ignorance. It's not there in in, in Gatodamich's commentary, so I did some research on it, because I couldn't remember the third one. Now I do. I know exactly what it is. So I'm clear. So the first one's the most interesting. Three types of ignorance. And i I got really good sources. I have the Tibetan, so then I really feel very confident. So first type of ignorance. There's a sequence here. It's going from the deepest to the most mm, superficial, one could say. The first one is Danyi, Chipu Maripa. Different variations on it, but that's as good as any. danya chipu maripa It's the ignorance. I'm just going to give you the translation. It won't explain much of it at all, much at all. It's the ignorance regarding a single identity? The ignorance regarding a single identity, or ignorance regarding one nature. Either one of those is fine. But I'll explain it. Then it will be totally clear because you already understand it. Because you've heard it a lot already. Okay. chipu maripa The ignorance regarding a single identity. It means like an identity or nature. So what is that? Well, you've heard it before. So I, can, I can use relatively few words. In that there were multiple ci- uh, citations from the all-accomplishing sovereign, you remember? Where Samantha Bhattra was speaking, and said, I am the agent. I am the agent. You remember that? That if you probe the agent all the way to the source, the ultimate source, the ultimate ground, the one agent who is the all-creator, Doing everything is Samantabhadra. Remember, that's the one nature. And so our ignorance is not recognizing that's who we are. The ignorance is not knowing that's who we are. Still supplicating, thinking Samantabhadra. Oh, Samantabhadra, I love your indigo color. I love your form. You're you're the holy. You're the sacred. You're the primordial Buddha. You're the Adi Buddha. You're. You are. Vajradhara, Adi Buddha, Samantabhadra. You are the embodiment of Dhammakaya. Oh, Namo to you, Namo to you. That's a good step. That's a bit step in the right direction, but it's still that separation, right? Who do you think is doing this? Who do you think is bowing? You know. So it's an unawareness of the identity of our own identity with the identity of Samantabhadra. So with skillful means, and a lot of you have this. I know Kim does, for example. You have background in stage of generation practice. So what are you cultivating in that context? Divine pride. Divine pride, right? You're dissolving your ordinary sense of identity into emptiness. Out of that emptiness, out of that non-duality of dharmakaya and dharmadhatu, out of that you arise as dharmakaya, your identity being that of the deity, of the, of the deity, whether it's Manjushri, Padmasambhava, whoever it may be. Now, of course, this comes with a great big warning label, enormous warning label. This big neon flashing, flashing, flashing. And that is, make sure that you dissolve your ordinary sense of identity into emptiness before you do this. If you don't, you're totally screwed. If I, as Alan Wallace, I'm going to say Alan Wallace, Stanford PhD, because then you know exactly what I'm talking about, if I hold on to that. I'll give up everything except for my Stanford PhD. That was a lot of work and a lot of prestige there, by the way. Stanford, way up there. So I'll give up everything else, but you know, I just want to bring my, my PhD with me. Here we go, PhD, come with me. Oh, <laughs> Down into the Dharmakaya, Dharmadatu. Oh, good, I still have my PhD. Here I come, Padma Sambhava. PhD from Stanford. <laughs> Idiota. That's a word. I think it covers pretty much the whole Latin basin, doesn't it? Idiota. Perfectly absurd. Perfectly absurd. Now you have to give away every aspect of I and mine. Totally dissolved. Totally squeaky clean. And then only pure coming out. That's skillful means. You're doing it with imagination. But of course, you must have some insight into emptiness. Otherwise, again, it's a joke. Well, in Dzogchen, you're not using imagination. You're simply releasing everything that is not that. Right. Just releasing everything. You're just releasing every aspect of, your, of your sense, uh, yourself, your identity as a sentient being, every aspect of it, including even the s- substrate consciousness. Whew. And including all the attributes of the substrate consciousness, bliss, luminosity, non conceptuality, open hand, release it all, and then just see what comes up by grace. But you're blessing yourself because Samantabhadra is all that's left. And you are. And when you realize that, then you are now aware of your identity and you're free of the unawareness of the unity, the sameness of your own identity with that of Samantabhadra, Dharmakaya, Buddha. So that's the deepest form of ignorance. When you're, don't just simply believe that and you're not simply imagining. That you have that identity, but you actually know it. Well, congratulations. You remember Gautama comment: the difference between sentient beings and Buddhas is, Buddhas know who they are; sentient beings don't. That's it. Everything else is commentary. That's it. That's it. So that's the first of the three types of ignorance. Unawareness, ma rikpa, not rikpa. Then we go to the second. Conate ignorance. It's very, very, a very literal translation. It's a very good translation. I've seen various ones. This is the best one. It's <laughs> lenji marikpa. lenji marikpa. Conate. Conate, you know, born together. Nate, born, co, same time. So it's conate ignorance, conate unawareness. So this is the type of ignorance, of course, that we're born with. In other words, you can't blame it on your parents or modernity, or anything else in this lifetime. Moreover, being conate, it's a, type of, it's a dimension of ignorance that you share with all other sentient beings. Aphids, hell beings, pretas, devas, asuras, anything, any type of sentient being, still a sentient being, is born with, when you come into a new existence, this is what you're bringing with you. You're bringing with you your Buddha nature, and you're bringing with you conate ignorance. Conate ignorance, OK? So it's a very deep level. and. It can be discussed in many many ways, but that perhaps the most useful is with respect to the teachings on emptiness. Right? When it comes to our identity, for example, we, one may be psychotic. Okay? If we look at re- ignorant, ignorance, delusion, one may be psychotic. Okay? Clearly, I mean, just deeply mentally imbalanced. So, okay, let's take it. Th- imagine, I think I'm Napoleon. I really think I'm Napoleon. Okay, well, then I'm really profoundly de- deranged that you, Protect me from myself, especially if I start getting militant, pulling out my sword, and thinking I'm, you know, like that. That could be a dangerous psychopath. Could be. And so that's something, that's a type of ignorance, because I don't know who I am, so I could glom onto that. I'm Napoleon. That could happen. But then we start taking it back, okay? And then, and then we can narcissism. There can be low self esteem. So now we've concocted this notion of self. I'm so unworthy, I'm so unworthy, I'm so despicable, blah, blah, blah. No. Or narcissism is the opposite. But these are my, once again constructed, reified senses of self that are completely delusional. Self low self esteem is always low. Self esteem is always delusional. High self esteem is always delusional. One just feels better for a while until it doesn't. You know. And so now we see it subtler. Now you're not psychotic. You're simply neurotic. You know? And then you take a step back. So let's just take this step by step. In Buddhist philosophy, Vibhashika, for example, Sattrantika, for example, there is the grasping to the self, to one's own identity, as being permanent, as in the sense of unchanging, unitary, independent. So the sense that I, the actual person here, you know, me, same one as when I was a kid, that same entity, that same self. That, that was me when I was a kid. Oh, look, there I am. That's when I was a little kid. That's, you know, me. I had a smaller body back then. But that was me. And then the one yesterday, that was me. And the one month ago, that, that was me. And in the future, that'll be me too. So unchanging. My body changes, my mind changes. But no, then me I, I'm stable. I'm, I'm here. I'm a keeper. That's a permanent. And then sense of unchanging. Cheek, I'm one person. I have many thoughts, emotions. I go through many moods and so forth and so on. My body's getting older and older, but I'm one. I have one body, I have one mind, a whole bunch of mental processes. But it's me in charge. I'm one person here, unitary. And then, And moreover, I'm independent. You can take away my body, you can take away my mind. I'm still, I'm still hanging. I'm still here. Waiting for another body. Give me another mind. Hey, I want a mind. I don't want the last one, by the way. I want a better one. You know. So that one. I'm not dependent on my body or mind. I'm, I'm here. I'm a keeper. So the question comes up, debated among Buddhist philosophers. Are we born with that or do we learn it? And they're debating. The debate kind of goes on. Some people say, you know, and, and if, it's, if we're born with it, they mean every sentient being has it. If it's conate, it's not Buddhist versus non-Buddhist, non-Buddhist versus Buddhist, religious people and so forth. No, it's, if it's conate, it means you're born with it. Wherever you're born, in any realm of existence, you've got it. So is this common? Is this common ground to all sentient beings? That everyone thinks of him, herself, itself, whatever it may be, unchanging, unitary, and independent. So there are some really smart Buddhist philosophers that think, no, it's acquired. It's acquired. Probably, you probably got some dose of some, mm, how do you say, reified philosophy. You got you got that you got that from somewhere—some theology, some religion, some philosophy, some science. Somebody told you, and that's how you got that notion. So one can see it's it's an interesting debate. I'm not going to debate it. Now let's go let's go subtler. Let's go subtler. Rangatupi Doctor Zimba, and this is grasping to the self, to one's own identity. Rangtawa means self-supportive. It's kind of like it's it's got its own ground. Self-rangatupa—it's able to support itself. Autonomous is a good word. Rangituba, zeirgituba. Zeir means substantial, really there. So autonomous and substantial. Here's the... Uh, I'm so glad I can remember this. I learned it 35 years ago. But boy, when, they, when, they, when the Geshe's teach you, they really hammer it in. And you spend five hours a day debating it. It sticks. because I learned this in 1973 or so. Mm, it's useful. What this is, it gives an analogy. That is, what's a relationship... So we, we should be asking ourselves, do you have that sense of, you know, when I point to you, that there's actually, I'm pointing someone, not just a body or a mind, but there's somebody really autonomous there. You, know, you have a body and mind. And that there's some, there really something to you. I mean, you're the person. When we say, you're a jerk, you're really a jerk. I'm not referring to your body. I'm not referring to your mind. I mean, you, you're just such a jerk. And, oh, but you're you so fabulous. You're just amazing. I, just, I think you're one incredible human being. I just, I'm just so in awe of you. I, think I admire you so much. I want you to know that. You're really a split. I would just want to be like you. I'm not talking about your body. No, I don't want your body and your mind. No, 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 no. You, you're the one. I think you're really the one. Okay? That there's a target for that. You, oh, you mean me? <laughs> you're talking to me? You know? That one. That one. And so now, if this is true, this is very interesting introspectively. You can check this, see for yourself. Do you have such a sense? Right? Not that anybody's going to praise you that much or denigrate you that much, but probably something in between. Or you do it to yourself. But the analogy they give is a like a consortium of, of, uh, of what do go merchants. Merchants. Or like a company. Like a company where you have the the, you know, the COO and the, the clerks and blah, blah, blah. You have all the employees. But among the employees, this is exactly what it is. They just didn't have companies back in Tibet. Uh, not much, I don't think. But among the employees and among the hierarchy, you know, this, the COO and the CPO, I don't know what they are. <laughs> Never been in a company. But among them, among them there's the one who's the CEO. That one I know, chief executive officer. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. I'm very business savvy, you can tell. The one who's in charge, the buck stops here. The CEO, the president, the director, the chairman, the head honcho. So the self-being within this company, this incorporation called Marta Inc., called Hoza Inc., incorporated. Because you are incorporated. I can see your body right there. You're incorporated. Right? Right? Incorporated with body and mind. Mm. Who's in charge here? We come over to, to that complex over there of Hose's body and mind. Who's in charge there? Who's in charge there? I see your body. I see your, your feet smell. Who's responsible for that? Who's responsible? She brought smelly feet into this room. Who's responsible? I know your feet aren't. They're just employees. So who's, who's responsible? Your mind? Who? No, it's not your mind. Your mind is not your feet. Your, your mind didn't make your feet smelly. I want to know who's responsible for those smelly feet you brought into this room. Aha, it's Hosea. Hosa. <laughs> This person who can blame is responsible. And people on podcasts, this is actually a skit. <laughs> she, she doesn't have smelly feet. <laughs> At least not today. I can't speak about all the time, but here I have no reason to believe. Just This has to, have to be said. You know, As far as I know, no smelly feet today. Okay. The one who's in charge. It's that one who's in charge amongst the group. The one who's in charge. Not quite the same as... And also it said, this self, it changes. I mean, I'm not the same person I was a year ago, or five, or ten, thirty, forty, fifty years ago. I'm not the same person. But I change more slowly than my mind. The thoughts come and go, come and go, come and go. But I kind of change more slowly. Like an like a, like a iceberg. No, what's that called? Uh, glacier, thank you. Like a glacier gradually slipping down to the ocean. I'm changing, but you know, a little bit of change over a year, another, a little bit of change over another year. Thoughts coming going like, you know, like sparklers. I'm changing. My body's changing kind of slowly too, but I'm even changing slower, slower. Kind of like that. So, that one in Buddhist philosophy, that one's believed to be conate. But there's a deeper one. And that is the notion of I existing prior to and independent of conceptual designation. That I'm really here. Just period. I'm, I'm really, I, there is somebody from this side. It's me. You know, prior to designation, conceptual designation, prior to labeling, before you called me Alan, before you thought this, before anybody thinks anything, I'm already here. I'm waiting to be tagged. I'm just waiting to call, call me something, but I'm already here. Call me anything you like. Call me a teapot if you like. I'll be Mr. Teapot if you wish, you know, but I'm already here. Prior to and independent of anything anybody thinks about me and anything anybody calls me, I'm already here. That's conate. That's kind of ignorance. Okay, But now we go to the third one. Kuntutapemarikpa. I looked online. I didn't like any of the translations for this one. But I think I have a good one. It's speculative. It's something, kuntutapem means it's contrived. It's fabricated. It's a fabricated kind of ignorance. It's something acquired. By thinking a lot. Conjuring up. It's a conjured up type of ignorance that happens in this lifetime. So a a type of conjured up ignorance would be people of darker skin color than me are inferior to me. You're not born with that. Any more than you're born with thinking that people with a lighter skin color are inferior to you. We're not born with that. You have to learn that one thinking that women are somehow inferior to men. You have to learn that one. That's not obvious. That's I mean, Reality doesn't say that. People say that. right? And likewise, all oh, the Buddhists are good, but all the non-Buddhists, the outsiders, they're not as good. You have to learn that kind of prejudice, religious bigotry. And so there's a lot of learned ignorance. And that's what this is. It's learned ignorance. You acquire it from your environment. So we're not a matter of blaming, but we are in the process of attributing. Where did this come from? That's a good scientific question. If a person became a racist, how did that happen? You weren't born with it. How did it happen? When did you do, first start showing these tendencies? Who are you emulating? Who do you hear this from? Right? And so this is the most superficial because you're not born with it. And moreover, you may acquire some learned ignorance, speculative ig- ignorance, and then you may, you may get over it, like having a disease for a while and then getting it over it. There was a man for, us old geezers, like, I won't say any names, but you know, people of my generation. There was a guy a long time ago named George Wallace, flaming racist. What, Mississippi, wasn't he? Really a flaming racist, like Ku Klan kind of guy. And then eventually, apparently, I, I didn't follow it, what's that? Alabama. Alabama, thank you, good, good. Uh, and then eventually, I don't know this to be true, but I heard this is true. Now, he got shot for one thing, that might have been a wake up call, um, but he survived it. But what I heard was he got over, to a considerable degree, his racism. He didn't wind up as racist. I don't know whether he got a full recovery, how would I know anyway? But what I understood is he gradually saw the error of his ways, and he wasn't as, at least, I think this is safe, wasn't as much of a racist in the latter part of his life as his former. Which means he's not the bad one, he's not the root of suffering, it was the racism. And he was very racist and then less so, and maybe, who knows, maybe he got a complete cure. That would be wonderful. He could get a complete cure. Whether or not he did, I don't know. But it's kind of like that. You know? Likewise, all the other ones. If you acquire a kind of delusion, acquire, acquired ignorance, then you can unacquire it if you see something to the contrary. Maybe met a whole lot of really smart, well-educated, sophisticated, ethical, noble American African-Americans. That might have done the trick. That might do it. I don't know how it happened, but clearly there's a lot of ways that could happen. So... This third one, then, this is very much a matter of time and space. This phase of culture, this this society, that society, and so on. So those are the three types of ignorance. And it's because of those three that we don't know how to be free. And any one of those three will do it. Now, one is the easiest to get rid of. Because it's acquired in the same lifetime. You can unacquire it. But not just by being told it's bad, it's bad, it's stupid. You have to see for yourself, right? And then you say, oh, well, that, that was fundamentally a mistake. And so, we have enough time for this. I think this is very serious. This is why I keep on coming back to it. The great acquired ignorance. And you don't have to believe. No, but nobody. but does anybody really need me to say you don't need to agree with what I'm saying? I mean, how could I possibly force you to agree with what I'm saying? And you don't have to like it either. But this is my kitchen, and my kitchen's hot. If you don't like it, get get another kitchen. There are plenty of teachers, Buddhist teachers and so forth, who never really go out of their way to criticize materialism or anything. They say, oh, you know, live and let live. We can have some materialists here in the Buddhist, you know. This this Buddhist guy, he's a materialist. He throws out reincarnation and karma. In fact, we're secular Buddhists. We're all Buddhists. In fact, we're the really progressive Buddhists. Uh, We like materialism. It's really swell. That's fine. You want to find people like that, you find them all over the place. I can give you emails. You know. But in my kitchen, it's hot. You don't have to like it. But do bear in mind, in the Buddh- Buddhist tradition, among the ten non-virtues, the most harmful one is not killing. It's wrong views. If you, v- you have wrong views, have wrong views, then really, depending on the wrong view, anything is acceptable killing, racism, genocide, anything, environmental degradation, anything. Anything is acceptable with the, with the suitable wrong view. So I think we've been, a lot of us here, maybe even in this room, maybe being a little bit not listening to Shantideva, being too complacent. Ah, you know, material not that bad. It's not that bad. I know some really nice materialists. Now you're doing the stupid thing, conflating a person with a view. I know very nice materialists as well. I admire them. They are excellent human beings. That doesn't mean all their views are excellent. So we really have to be smart here. And if you're smart, you'll know that all along for the last seven weeks, I've not been criticizing human beings. I've been criticizing views. I want to see them annihilated. And I don't want to harm a single sentient being. I don't care what their views are, I don't want to harm sentient beings. So here is something very timely sent to me today by a very good friend of mine. And he thanked me for providing people on the podcast with some defense against the kind of view I'm going to be reading. It came up in today's New York Times, and it's by... And again, I'm going to say a name here, not because I'm angry at him. I'm not. I'm not angry at him. I don't even know him. I'm not here to criticize him at all. But his name and his station is significant. That's why I'm saying it. Otherwise, I think you might not believe that anybody is saying this. His name is Michael S.A. Graziano, and he's professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. It's one of our finest. So he speaks, and this is published in the New York Times, that many people regard as the finest newspaper in the United States. Mm. By the way, they didn't run that story from England about continuity of consciousness after death. They somehow skipped that one, I guess. Maybe they didn't read it. Or no, I, don't, I think, just don't think they felt like running that, because it's an incredibly materialistic magazine. Almost always. It's almost every single time. Taking materialism as an established scientific fact. They do it time and again. I watch, I read it every day. I especially look for the science. Virtually never. Did the journalists working for the New York Times ever, ever, ever challenged materialism? Virtually never. Okay, so here's one: New York Times and the art and the article's name. I'm not going to read the whole article, but you'll have it in your notes, and you read the whole article. You see if I, you can see for yourself whether I'm misrepresenting in any way. If I am, then shame on me. But I'm going to try not to. Here's the here's the um, title of the article: Are We Really Conscious? Now that should give you some idea where this is going. So there, here's a direct quote. Oh, he starts off, by the way, by saying, OK, well, we have some big issues about, human, about nature of reality. Well, for starters, we have Copernicus. Ever since Copernicus, we know that we're not in the center of the universe. We're just one planet among hundreds of billions. So in other words, our place in the universe is insignificant. That's important. We're not in the center. It's just the opposite. Our place in the universe is absolutely insignificant. Then he said we have big, another big question. What's our place within the fabric of life? Uh, Darwin answered the question. We're finished with, with the question. We have the answer. We are simply a twig on the tree of life. So you're insignificant. Don't think you're anything other. You're a twig. Humanity is a twig. Look at the nearest twig. It's gorillas and chimpanzees. Okay. And then it comes, he said, well, then we have this whole issue of the mind-body issue. He said, this isn't so clearly resolved. But you know what's the relationship between body and mind? He said not So, but he said I've got an angle, and I've got an angle as a not a philosopher or a theologian, but as a scientist at one of the premier universities in the country, one of the best in the world. And I'm a neuroscientist and a psychologist, and that that's, and that's my platform. He didn't say you know it's Sunday I'm taking a day off. It's time for me to do some philosophical bullshitting. He didn't say that. He's saying I'm a scientist. And we're working on this in the laboratory using such and such methodologies. And they see presenting, this as a scientific theory. There should be no doubt about it. You read it. And then you just see whether I'm misrepresenting. Here's what he says. Now, but he set it up first. Okay, in the universe, we're insignificant. In the fabric of life, we're insignificant. And then it comes to our minds. And this mysterious kind of thing, this, this whole mind-brain issue, what's going on with that? There's no clarity. There's no consensus. Well, he's going to try to get, show us the right direction, to come to consensus, to settle this for what? what how do you say it? For well, for once and for all. Thank you so much. Emerson is my, my wordmaster here. We're going to settle this for once and for all. Okay? It's been dangling around, wow, 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 for a long time. Well, I'm coming in as a neuroscientist, and I'm going to tell you what's really going on. And I'll tell you who my the people who inspire me are. It's Patricia Churchland and Daniel Dennett. They're the ones that got the right idea. And now, but they're both philosophers. So frankly, what do they know? But I'm a neuroscientist. So, we neuroscientists, we, we work in facts and knowledge. And now, as a neuroscientist, I'm going to tell you what's really going on. We have an awareness of information we process. What is this mysterious aspect of ourselves? Gosh, we've been, we've been asking that question, haven't we? I mean, really, he's asking the same question, Padma Sambhava and this neuroscientist. That's very cool. What is this awareness? What is this? What is this mysterious aspect of ourselves? It's a good question. This awareness of information. We have, that's cool though, right? He nailed it. Awareness of information. It's not just information, we have an awareness of information. That cognizance, that knowing, right? One of the defining, two defining characteristics of consciousness, luminosity and cognizance. We're aware of, know, information. What is this mysterious aspect of ourselves? Many theories have been proposed, but none has passed scientific muster." That's good. So far, good. I believe a major change in our perspective on consciousness may be necessary. A shift from a credulous and egocentric viewpoint to a skeptical and slightly disconcerting one. That sounds good, too. (laughs) I like where this is going. Skeptical, disconcerting, not ordinary, not banal, not familiar. Okay, you're ready. I'm starting to hyperventilate here. <coughs> so what is this skeptical and slightly dis- disconcerting brand new proposal these come with? It's going to take our breath away. Here it is, namely, that we don't actually have inner feelings in the way most of us think we do. Uh, but, that, but that's what John Watson said 100 years ago. That's what B.S. Skinner said uh, 50 years ago. That's what Patricia Tristlin said 30 years ago. That's what Daniel Dennett said for as long as he's been alive. Uh, Okay, okay. Okay, we'll continue. I don't mean to interrupt. How does the brain go beyond processing information to become subjectively aware of information? Now, get the question. You really have to memorize the question. How does the brain... Now, the brain is agent, right? The brain is the agent. How does the brain... How does the brain go beyond processing information to become subjectively aware of information? The answer is, it doesn't. That's it, it doesn't. The brain doesn't become subjectively aware of information, in case you forgot part of that. The answer is, it doesn't. The brain has arrived at a conclusion that is not correct. The brain has arrived at a conclusion that you're actually aware. The brain has done that. Sneaky bastard. (laughs) The brain has misled you into thinking you're aware. little stinker. The brain has arrived at a conclusion. The brain has arrived at a conclusion that is not correct. When we introspect and seem to find that ghostly thing, awareness, consciousness, the way green looks or pain feels. Our cognitive machinery is accessing internal models and those models are providing information that is wrong. You think you're having a subjective experience. You're not. You got lied to if you existed, which you don't. But if you were to have existed, you would have been lied to. The machinery is computing an elaborate story about a magical-seeming property, awareness, experience. And there is no way for the brain to determine through introspection that the story is wrong, because introspection always accesses the same incorrect information. The argument here is that there is no subjective impression. You're not having any subjective impressions. You're not having any subjective experiences at all. Right now, you're not having any, shall I say it louder, so you can really make sure that you're not hearing anything. This man is not psychotic. If this came out of an intense mental asylum for people who are completely delusional, I would say, well, you really are incredibly delusional. But no, he's teaching young people at Princeton University. The argument here is that there is no subjective impression. Impression means experience. There are no subjective experiences of any kind. There is only information in a data processing device. That's it. We've been training our attention here for seven weeks. Let's ask him. This guy is a psychologist and a neuroscientist. That means he's covering both sides of the fence, right? Psychology and then studying the mind and the brain. That's what psychology and neuroscience is supposed to be about. So we've been really training attention a lot, right? Let's see, what is attention? Because he's going to tell us. You ready? Attention, colon. A real mechanistic phenomenon that can be programmed into a computer chip. In other words, it has nothing to do with awareness. It's programmed. They already have the programs. Just put it in a computer chip. In other words, this in other words, I presume this is a pretty good cell phone here. I guess it's already got attention. No awareness, but attention. So we have attention with no awareness. But what about awareness? We've been really looking to awareness. So awareness of awareness. Right? We've been doing that a lot, right? Illuminating with awareness. Awareness illuminates the body. What's awareness? He's going to tell us. Awareness, colon a cartoonish reconstruction of attention that is as physically inaccurate as the brain's internal model of color. Almost all other theories of consciousness are rooted in our intuitions about awareness. Like the intuition that white light is pure, our intuitions about awareness come from information computed deep in the brain. But the brain computes models that are caricatures of real things. As with color, so with consciousness. It's best to be skeptical of intuition. I'm going to say one thing that I've never said once in this retreat. But what he's telling you, and I'm going to be very vulgar. I apologize to Jeannie. He's turning to all of us. Addressing us as individuals with minds, with awareness, with attention. And he's saying, fuck you. Can you read it some other way? Fuck you. You're a, I've already told you once, you're insignificant in the universe. In the life you're insignificant. And as an individual you're a non-entity. And you think you have your experiences, fuck you. You don't even have experiences. And if you think you are, well, are you a Princeton professor of psychology and neuroscience? Who the fuck are you? Now, don't expect me to be easy on this one. If Shantideva says rage for craving, hostility, and delusion, this is being taught in schools. This is New York Times. This is today. This is the most grotesque false view, I think, that I've seen in the history of humanity, that insults our intelligence, our very integrity, our very identity, our very sense of being human being right down to the core, that says we are mindless computers. They're saying, fuck you. I'm not going to use this word ever again, but if it's ever appropriate, how about now? It is so insulting to the intelligence that he's saying, hear what I'm saying, and then delete that, and just assume you're a mindless fucking computer. Fuck you. You have nothing. We have everything. If you want to know anything about us, check with us, because we know about the brain, and you know squat. Fuck you. There are all types of evil views. We've looked at them. Racism, sexism, s- child abuse, etc., cetera, et cetera, if justifying everywhere. Th- I think this is the worst one. It's the worst one. It's worse than anti-Semitism. It's worse than anything I've seen. And it's in the New York Times from one of the finest universities in the world. And I imagine he's probably a pretty decent guy. I can't hear. I can't hear. The world... There is an answer for that. It's the world. It's the US government. It's the National Science Foundation. It's the National Institute of Mental Health. It's the media. They didn't say, here's a psychopath espousing absolutely denigrating views that demoralize us right down to the very core, down to our being a mere chip. They're not saying that. This is right there. They never say, this is the view of the author, but we at the New York Times, we distance ourselves. They don't do that. Any more than they did that with Eric Kandel, who said, all psychological problems are really nothing more than brain dysfunction. They didn't distance themselves from that either. They're, they are the propaganda arm, one of the many propaganda arms of this Church of Scientific Materialism, that I think really may kill the human race. So don't expect me, please. You don't have to sit my, sit, stay in my kitchen. I don't care. But this is my kitchen, and I'm, I'm saying he's telling the whole human race, "Fuck you." That they're somehow they're above it. They're outside. They're neuroscientists, right? So they know what's really going on. What's really going on is the brain, but only they know. This is infinitely worse than what the Roman Catholic Church was doing during the time of the Inquisition. This is infinitely worse. They only killed a couple of hundred thousand women. This is, this is destroying humanity. And it's not some ivory tower philosophical bullshit. This is what really, really pisses me off. If people want to say bullshit, Fine write a book on philosophy. But when it's coming with the credentials of science where he's telling the kind of methodologies in their lab by which they're somehow somebody conjuring up, this is a totally untestable hypothesis. It's so absurd, you can't even imagine testing it. So to present this as the solution, this is the, sound, the scientific answer to what the philosophers and so forth have been messing around with for a long time. It is grotesque beyond words. That something I cherish, I admire, I love, I've studied, I've engage with, and that is science. And to see science being misused in this way is, I cannot find a heavier, too heavy adjective. Grotesque is about as good as I can do. It would be like people raising the banner of Buddhism and saying, let's kill all the Muslims, because that's what the Buddha would have really wanted. I, I gag, you know? So this is speculative ignorance. It is, could not be more diametrically opposed to everything that Buddhism stands for. It's worse than Nazis. It's worse than racism. It's worse than, it's worse than om- all. Because this is warfare against the entire human race. It's not only human race, but it's saying animals have no subjective experiences. Of course. If we don't, we're animals. It's warfare against the whole world. And it's ideological warfare. And they're the only one that wins, but they will get grants. If you're asking who funds this, they will. They'll get it from the U.S. government, NIH, NIH, they'll get it from England, they'll get it from Germany, they'll get it from China, they'll get it from... Get, oh, they're, get, they, they're just getting flooded with money. These people. It's not the people that's wrong. I, have, I, I can say in my heart right now, do I feel one bit of ill will? Do I want him to break his fingernail? The author of that article. Do I want him to break his fingernail? No. I don't want him to break a fingernail. I don't want him to have a bad day. What he's saying here is catastrophic. So that's a commentary to three types of ignorance. The superficial one can destroy civilization, and it already has. It already has. The destruction of Tibetan civilization was by people who believed that. The destruction of millions of people in the Soviet Union under Stalin was people who believe that. They've waged the bloodiest, most grotesque religious warfare in the history of humanity by people who believe that. So this is my hot kitchen. If you identify with anything he's saying there, you're going to burn. Not that I'm going to burn you, but you will burn. Because I'm torching it. And if you identify with his views, you'll feel burned. You'll feel really pissed off at me. And I'm sorry, but I'm not burning you. I'm not burning anybody listening on podcasts. I have no ill will, no wish to harm. A tiny bit, I don't want to burn a hair on your hand. But I will torch, I will incinerate. And I will not stop. I'm not going to stop until that is looked with contempt by everybody who sees how could they, how could they have misled our children to believe that grotesque view of human nature. With compassion for every sentient being, loving kindness for every sentient being, respect for every sentient being. Embracing the Buddha nature of every sentient being. Let's free ourselves from the three types of ignorance so that we can see how to become free. That's enough passion for one night. Enjoy your weekend. See you Monday morning.